in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard has a Star Talk report on springtime constellations in the night sky. In her segment Now You Know, Stephanie Phillips shares excerpts from a Catskill Mountain Keeper webinar on environmental justice. Laura Silverman whets our appetite for growing and preparing fresh salad. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Civilian evacuations are moving ahead in parts of Ukraine. A day after a missile strike killed at least 50 people at a train station in the eastern part of the country. NPR's Ada Peralta reports Ukrainian officials are urging people to flee while there's still time. What's happening here uh, is that the Ukrainian government believes that the Russian troops uh, that have retreated from the capital region are regrouping in Belarus. And the Ukrainian government says that sometime in the near future, they will begin attacking in the east. So people are trying to get ahead of that and they're rushing to train stations. And now authorities here are saying that civilians should still continue to evacuate. uh, And because uh, the Kramatorsk train station is now inoperable. Uh, They have started busing people to another nearby station. That's NPR's Ada Peralta reporting from the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is calling Friday's missile strike on the train station in eastern Ukraine the latest sign of Russian war crimes. NPR's Tom Bowman reports top defense officials in the U.S. say they're not buying Russia's denial that it was responsible for the attack. The Russian Defense Ministry claims a missile that struck the station was only used by Ukraine's military, but a senior U.S. defense official said it was a Russian SS-21 missile that slammed into the train station in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russian forces appear to be regrouping in Belarus and Russia for a major offensive in the Donbass area. The senior defense official said some of those troops are resupplying in a Russian town just over the border in Russia and are expected to head south into Donbass. Pentagon officials and defense analysts say they expect Russian forces to attempt to box in Ukrainian troops and prevent them from moving or getting resupplied. Tom Bowman, NPR News, Washington. The Supreme Court in Idaho has temporarily blocked a new state law that would ban abortion after about six weeks of pregnancy. Boise State Public Radio's James Dawson reports the law was scheduled to take effect later this month. The law would ban most abortions in Idaho after six weeks of pregnancy. It had been set to take effect April 22nd. Family members of an aborted fetus could also sue the doctor who performs the procedure, but the state Supreme Court has stopped its implementation while it considers a lawsuit filed by a regional arm of Planned Parenthood. State lawyers argued earlier this week that they need more time than the two weeks the court initially gave them to build their defense. Planned Parenthood says the law is unconstitutional on several grounds, 
which the Idaho Attorney General's office outlined in an opinion earlier this year. For NPR News, I'm James Dawson in Boise. This is NPR News. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. Coming up on today's show, Stephanie Phillips shares excerpts from a Catskill Mountain Keeper webinar on environmental justice. Laura Silverman whets our appetite for growing and preparing fresh salad. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with Star Talk. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farming Country. Country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. It is the beginning of April, and all signs are pointing to spring. The birds are returning, the temperature is warming, and the constellations that have been with us since November are disappearing from our night sky. Orion and his companion dogs, Candace Major and Candace Minor, have been the dominant constellations in our sky all winter, visible from dusk till dawn. But now their time in the sky is fleeting. By the middle of April, these constellations will set by 10 p.m. They will soon disappear completely from our night sky and will not be seen again until early autumn. Turning our gaze to the eastern sky, we can see the constellations that signal the arrival of spring. Standing on its end in the eastern sky is the asterism, the Big Dipper, which is in the constellation Ursa Major. Looking below the cup of the Big Dipper is the backward question mark of the sickle in the constellation Leo the Lion. Closer to the horizon is the red-orange star Arcturus in Bootes. To the side of Bootes is the bowl-shaped constellation Corona Borealis. Just above the horizon in the east at 9.30 p.m. this week is the keystone of Hercules. These five constellations are the constellations that dominate our spring sky. As spring progresses, we will see these constellations climb high in our evening sky while they will remain throughout the summer. Add to your list of signs of spring the return of these constellations to our night sky. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Good morning. This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. Catskill Mountain Keeper periodically hosts webinars related to protecting our environment here in the Catskills. 
With the generous permission from Deputy Director Catherine Nadeau, this morning we will share excerpts from a recent webinar on environmental justice. The panelists were Mountain Keepers Environmental Justice Coordinator Taylor Jaffe and Catherine Nadeau herself. Taylor's research pinpoints areas of the Catskills with environmental hazards. Her suspicion is that these hazards may particularly affect disadvantaged communities. As a person of color herself, she hopes that her research will help discourage waste disposal near vulnerable populations. Here's Taylor Jaffe. I'm really excited to be sharing this landscape analysis of environmental justice in the Catskills, not only to share this work and give everyone some more resources, but also because it's really about opening up the conversation and an invitation, really, for all of you to add to this body of work with your own experience in your own community. My time with Mountain Keeper started back in 2011 when Mountain Keeper was getting involved in the fracking fight. I'm from Livingston Manor. I grew up on Snowdance Farm, and I had an egg business growing up. So 25 cents from every dozen <laughs> of eggs that I sold went to Mountain Keeper to help with that fracking fight. And that's where my passion for environmental justice really began and started to take hold. After that, I went to Colgate University and studied political science. My senior year, I spent really diving into Superfund sites and how they were distributed across communities throughout New York State. Catskill Mountain Keeper has always been involved in environmental justice work because as we're thinking about how to protect our region's forests and wildlands, how to protect our resources, it's people-driven. It's really driven by the communities that we're protecting. When we look at the Catskill region, I'm defining it by six counties. Delaware, Green, Otsego, Schoharie, Sullivan, and Ulster counties. I also looked at communities. So PJAs are potential environmental justice areas. So where are these pockets of low-income and minority populations? Apparently, not so much in counties to the north of us. I looked to the New York State DEC definitions. There's two criteria. The first is a census block group having a low-income population equal to or greater than 22.82%. This low-income population is defined by the percentage of the population that has an annual income below the poverty threshold. And then in addition to a low income population, there's also a threshold for a minority population. So a census block group with a minority population equal to or greater than 52.42% in urban areas or 26.28% in rural areas. And the way we're defining a minority population is really broad. It's basically you take the entire population we're subtracting everyone who identifies as white alone and non-Hispanic, and that's how we're getting that number. So it's, it's meant to include as many people as possible to count in that minority population. Historically, there have been less communities of color in these rural areas. A lot of communities of color center around urban areas. It's not me who's <laughs> deciding what's urban versus rural, but that is something that is designated by the census. And another exciting thing is that while this is what we're working with now, and this was available for this research, broader definitions for disadvantaged communities are outlined in the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. And just today, the Climate Justice Working Group released that new definition for a comment period and hearing period. Taylor explored where environmental hazards have been identified in the Catskill counties that she studied. 
She wanted to see whether these match up with the areas of disadvantaged populations. In other words, whether environmental injustices exist. So based on those thresholds for APIJA, a potential environmental justice area, I added this all to a map. <laughs> Sullivan County is where we start to get a little bit interesting. We have 78 census block groups and 37 potential environmental justice areas. There's a lot more of these minority communities, communities that meet the minority thresholds, and both low income and minority. And there's an additional three DEC PJs. And then Ulster County has 152 census block groups and 39 PJs. Definitely a lot concentrated around Kingston and just kind of spread out here. So really more of a mix of low income and minority communities, plus 12 additional with the DEC data. It's really important to note that environmental justice began as an urban concept, and this is because a higher population density meant greater risks for overpollution. Because we're such a rural area, we'd expect to see less environmental justice issues and also less environmental hazards overall than you might in Manhattan, for example. Thinking about environmental hazards, Taylor first considered toxic waste. That is, where are the dumps? So waste placement. The issues of concern here are hazardous waste, remediation parcels, and landfills. Uh, the good news is that we don't have any hazardous waste treatment, storage, and disposal facilities in the Catskills. Uh, we definitely do produce hazardous waste, so that begs the question of where we're shipping it. But for this initial bird's eye view landscape analysis, it's a win. <laughs> We're also looking at remediation parcels, and these include Superfund sites, brownfield cleanup programs, environmental restoration programs, and voluntary cleanup programs. These are all state or federally recognized areas that have some kind of historical pollution. So maybe it's old industry that got abandoned, or maybe it's a landfill that was covered and left there. Either way, there's some kind of historical waste that needs to be cleaned up. It's recognized by the state and or the federal the EPA. And so of these remediation parcels, there were 28 of concern. Of concern here means that they're not cleaned up and they present a threat to the environment or human health. Of these 28, three are located in Delaware County, one in Greene County, none in Otsego, one in Schoharie, four in Sullivan County, and 19 in Ulster County. So Ulster definitely takes the cake there. And of these 28, 14 are located in potential environmental justice areas, and that number includes three DEC peaches. For landfills and transfer stations, there's only three active landfills. Two are in Delaware County and one in Sullivan County, and 51 transfer stations. Six of these transfer stations are located in Ulster County potential environmental justice areas, and five in Sullivan County potential environmental justice areas. The benefit of mapping that out is then to see where these waste sites fall in these communities and then be able to make a decision about how that's impacting the community and really put that justice perspective of how do we want things to be. What do we know about problematic drinking water in our area, which is, of course, a watershed for New York City? In addition to waste placement, I also looked at water contamination. I got my information through the public safe drinking water information system for the past 10 years. I found 93 water systems experiencing health-based violations in the Catskills, and 30 of those were of notable concern. 
Notable concern here means they were either a community water system or non-transient, non-community water system. So both of those places where you would be consuming the water over a longer period of time. And notable concern also means that the contaminant that triggered a health-based violation was really something that would potentially impact human health. So uh, of these 30 systems, Sullivan County had three systems of concern that overlapped with 17 potential environmental justice areas. This was really the biggest overlap that I saw. It was really centered around Monticello, Fallsburg, Liberty. And then Ulster County had seven systems of concern with 11 possible overlaps in the potential environmental justice areas. The public water systems, they're only mapped out if they serve over, I think, 3,000 or so people, which for an area like the Catskills, that is only a certain percentage of our population and of the water systems. Some of these only serve like five to 15 people. So definitely less data available there, but using a best guess, these were the outcomes. And thinking about these issues, it's important to think about how are the benefits and burdens distributed? Are they distributed equally? Does everyone have meaningful and equitable participation in the decision-making process for these environmental concerns? And then finally, in environmental justice, a big question is the chicken or the egg question. For example, with a landfill, did the landfill come first and the property value went down so it became a low-income community? Or was a landfill sited in a low-income community and that community became burdened with the landfill? According to Taylor Jaffe, the issue of environmental justice is finally being addressed at the New York State level. Back in November, we all had the opportunity to vote yes on Proposition 2, the Green Amendment. It went through. So now enshrined in our New York Constitution is the right for every New Yorker to clean air, clean water, and a healthful environment, which is super exciting. And it was really, really a lot of fun to be a part of that final push and that process. Another thing that we want to bring to everyone's attention is the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. The draft scoping plan is out since December 31st. Some hearing dates are coming up soon, so I'm going to let Catherine talk a little bit about that. Locals are convinced that the biggest threat to communities may come from large-scale developments, which are likely to spring up where land is cheap and residents don't have much political power. Here's Catherine Nadeau. Yeah. And what are the areas that we really have to have our antenna up about when we're talking about any type of development being cited, when we're talking about emerging threats and contaminants, where do we have to pay closer attention? Mountain Keeper is one of the anchor organizations in New York Renews, which is a statewide coalition of 350 organizations fighting for jobs and justice, fighting for climate solutions. And in 2019, we passed the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which is a hallmark bill, one of the most ambitious, one of the most impactful laws in the nation that puts climate justice at the center of New York's work on climate solutions. It does so in a couple of different ways, one of which is creating a process that from the very jump includes a climate justice working group as an influential partner in making all decisions and setting the path forward for New York's transition into a renewable energy future. And it also ensures that at least 35% with a goal of 40% of climate spending throughout New York State is 
really focus on what the law terms disadvantaged communities, communities that are going to be hit first and worst and are being hit first and worst by the climate crisis. So the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, one of the first steps that that law said that New York State needs to take is to come up with a scoping plan, a plan that begins to lay out how are we actually going to shift the mechanisms and levers of government to move us toward renewable energy and to move us toward a just transition, a transition that protects our communities to our renewable energy future. Just last week, I think it was, the Climate Action Council, the the body that is designated to work on this law, announced the public hearing dates. They're happening throughout the state. They're happening in your living room on the 12th of April and the 11th of May. And those are fantastic opportunities for everyday people to weigh in on what's happening in this plant and to help us ensure that environmental justice and climate justice is right at the center of everything that New York State is doing. We want to be building our way into our renewable energy future and out of the climate killing past by doing so with our communities in mind and by building a more equitable, just and sustainable future. Breaking news, the Climate Justice Working Group released a draft of the disadvantaged communities criteria. Again, disadvantaged communities, that's the legal term under the law for communities that are being hurt first and worst by the climate crisis. And one of the first things that the Climate Justice Working Group has to do is help identify what are disadvantaged communities. Where do we have to be the most mindful? Where do we have to be investing the most? There's a uh, public comment period open on that. So these are ways that you can engage in the fight across New York on environmental justice and on climate justice. So now you know where to focus our environmental efforts. We've been listening to excerpts from a webinar hosted by Catskill Mountain Keeper. You'll find archived videos of their thought-provoking webinars on their website, CatskillMountainKeeper.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. For WJFF's Farm and Country, this is Laura Silverman bringing you What's Cooking? Even though my garden will not produce leafy lettuces for weeks to come, greenhouses and warmer temperatures just a few miles south mean that pea shoots and little gems are imminent. So let's hear it for salad in all its clean, crisp, and refreshing glory. I've been listening to The Third Plate, read by author Dan Barber, the chef at Blue Hill in Manhattan and at Stone Barns in Westchester and I've been struck hearing him talk about how greatly growing methods affect the flavor of our food. It's all about the quality of the soil. The healthier it is, in other words, when it's allowed to cycle naturally and build up a strong and diverse microbiome, the more minerals it imparts to whatever is grown in it. And minerals are what give our vegetables their flavor. I'm not talking about buying organic but about seeking out farm-grown produce raised the old-fashioned way. That's one more reason we're so lucky to live in this bountiful region. Support your local farms, my friends, and start a compost pile. Adopt a few chickens. Grow some of your own vegetables 
in soil that's rich in organic matter, and you will taste the difference. When it comes to making salads this spring, consider getting out of your comfort zone. We all have our regular repertoire, and it's handy to have a few standards up your sleeve, but there's a lot to be said for variety. I hear it's the spice of life. Although mild little side salads can have their place, I'm not a fan of the wimpy underdressed salad. My preference is for bold, bright flavors that wake up the palate and really satisfy. Lately, I made a salad of thinly sliced ribbons of kale tossed with finely chopped toasted walnuts in a dressing of pureed kimchi. It was outstanding. The kind of dish that British chef April Bloomfield would call Moorish, meaning you keep coming back for more. She has a new cookbook out, by the way, A Girl and Her Greens, that's filled with vegetable-centric recipes, like a salad that combines roasted and raw fennel, and an inspired salad sandwich. I don't have the book yet, but I'll probably get it, as she won me over with her first one, A Girl and Her Pig. My favorite recipe from that one, believe it or not, is actually a salad. The New Plus Ultra of Caesar salads, in fact, with a miraculously creamy and savory dressing made with more anchovies than you think could be good. But is it ever? Another great dressing is that carrot sesame ginger situation you come across in Japanese restaurants. I could eat a shoe dressed with that. You just dump all the ingredients in a food processor, chopped carrots and ginger, a little honey, a jalapeno, some lemon juice, and toasted sesame oil, and puree it with a little water. The delicious results keep in the fridge for several days and are wonderful on all sorts of greens, radishes, and even shredded cabbage. Butter lettuce leaves make wonderful wraps for all kinds of fillings, like minced chicken with pine nuts and scallions, or ground pork with mint and cilantro. Or do like they do at Korean barbecue joints, and fold spicy grilled meats and herbs inside big ruffled leaves of lettuce. There's something very key I must convey to you while we're on the subject of salads. Of course the freshness and quality of your ingredients is of utmost importance, but so is the way you prepare them. Taking the time to create different textures with your vegetables makes a world of difference. Think of what happens to a big horsey cabbage leaf when it's sliced fine, or to a carrot when you grate it, or to a radish when you dice it into tiny cubes. Raw ingredients are one thing. How you transform them is another entirely. This is cooking 101, of course, but I find that people who have grown bored with salads fall in love all over again when they venture into new and exciting territory. After all, you've got to keep things fresh. This is Laura Silverman, and you've been listening to WJFF's What's Cooking, the show about eating life up. The OutsideInstitute.org is Laura Silverman's webpage that has all her current activity. Ramps are the first edible green plant of spring. Celebrate the arrival of spring by harvesting a bounty of ramps that you pick. Also known as wild leeks, 
ramps are related to garlic and onions and grow wild in the forests of the Upper Delaware River watershed. Would you like to learn how to harvest, wash, and store them, and sustainably manage a ramps patch? Forager Steve Schwartz says Delaware Valley Ramps will be open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday through the season. The Ramps You Pick season runs from Friday, April 22nd through Sunday, May 15th. Info at DelawareValleyRamps.com has ticket information. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest from Catskill Mountain Keepers, Environmental Justice Coordinator Taylor Jaffe and Deputy Director Catherine Nadeau. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening and supporting Farming Country on Radio Catskill public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability a community-supported, science-based nonprofit, taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Hello. If you're a book reader, and even if you're not, I'd like to invite you to join me, Aaron Hicklin, every Sunday at noon for Shelf Life on WJFF Radio Catskill, a show about books and the people who love them. Each episode, my guest picks two